thinking this throughout this week if hope uh, was probably uh, the, the, the characteristic that I most uh, feel my greatest dependence upon during Christmas season, peace would be perhaps the most elusive of all, the, all these uh, we theme that we use as, uh, for Advent is that hope, peace, uh, joy next week, and then love in the final uh, week of Advent. Uh, but this perhaps is the most elusive for us. Uh, I, would, I would hazard to guess probably for you as well. Uh, it is a busy season, and we get busy, and we have our calendars full, and we're rushing here, and we're rushing there. And uh, you've heard me say it practically every year uh, that I, find, I, don't, I, I rarely find any place of serenity until after uh, the Christmas celebrations are over. For me, one of the signals for that's always been our Christmas Eve service uh, here, a candlelight service. That evening when that service is concluded is probably the first time during the Christmas season that my, my soul just goes, <sighs> finally, uh, there's that moment of serenity. So it's really elusive for us. It was interesting to me, and uh, Whitlin read this passage of Scripture, but in Micah 5, uh, one verses one through five, the very last conclusion in uh, in that passage that he read uh, was speaking of Christ, of this Messiah, this one, this one will be our peace. And it's really interesting that uh, they seem not to have recognized that down through the ages. Uh, they they would acknowledge that God is at peace with them in different ways, in different times, in different eras in the life of God's people. Uh, but it just seems, strikes me odd that they wouldn't have understood that Micah was speaking of someone who would be their peace, not something. Uh, I thought about this, how elusive peace is, but it's elusive in the world. I just shared my thoughts here just writing these because I was just kind of thinking through this this week. What peace we know in the world is a fragile peace which as we've seen with recent atrocities committed against the Israeli people in just a single day. We remember our own 9-11 and how that beautiful, bright, sunshiny day with, within hours, over 3,000 Americans lay buried under rubble in the ash of the Twin Towers. We know that this fragile peace can be interrupted at any moment and that the peace of the world itself rests not in goodwill among men as much as it rests in assured mutual destruction. Even today our streets are filled, it seems, with crime and violence and it feels more and more like there's no safe place to be. The schoolhouse feels as threatened as a theme park. Anywhere it seems violence could break out. Concealed carry permits and handgun purchases are skyrocketing in numbers bearing witness to this fragile peace in the world. It's elusive as well in the workplace, it seems, when I was young, practically every older man in our community uh, that I grew up in worked at the same factory from their late teens all the way into their retirement age. Barnhart Furniture, Uniglass, Thonay, Beauty Maid, Southern Screw, and so many more. But now it seems that layoffs and companies relocating overseas can abruptly leave a man without employment and often leave him to retain training in some, retrain in some areas which will pay him far less than what he had ever made. Companies, it seems, can no longer refuse to hire someone and once hired, dare not fire them, except only in the extreme cases. 
DEI policies smother worker creative, creativity and product quality takes a back seat to political correctness. Workers these days, if they want to keep a job and ha have an opinion in, a, in or outside the workplace on any social or moral issue without risking the loss of a job, they can't have an opinion. So folks just keep their heads down, their mouths shut, and they go to work every day just to put bread on the table. There's no peace in the workplace. Very little peace in the home as well. It's elusive there. Broken homes and absent parents physically and emotionally, and sometimes both. Rebellious children, strife, poverty, so many kids growing up in the streets and those with homes, even those with homes bombarded daily through social media with so-called entertainment design to, seems to numb their minds and make it impossible for them to actually think anymore. Isolated in their rooms in front of the blue haze of a cell phone, they become devoid of any communication skills with other human beings. Government, government interference encouraging single-parent homes as a financially beneficial decision and indoctrinating our children from the cradle, as it were, to the university classrooms. Unleashing, by the way, a generation of morally destitute and ignorant young men and women to step into some leadership role somewhere. Parents whose idea of success is a six-digit yearly salary and keeping the kids busy and entertained have essentially given up their role as mentors to their children's friends. Peace is elusive in the home. It's elusive in the church as well. Once a refuge for the world-weary instructor of the way of peace, so many churches today, wittingly or not, open their doors wider to accommodate the world, fashioning themselves to appeal to the appetites of the world and have given themselves trendy names and called themselves seeker-friendly, no longer bidding men come and die, but rather marketing themselves as a social gathering spots with campus coffee shops with tall tables and stools and comfy couches arranged in a cozy corner with design or lighting to set just the right mood for some small talk before the band begins while they might provide an hour of amusement devoid of truth and the Holy Spirit, the customers leave still not knowing the way of peace. It's elusive within our own hearts. So often in our hearts, our peace is fragile too, circumstantial almost in every way. Subject, subject always to falter at the slightest inconvenience in life. The traffic jam, the long line at the drive-through, the Mr. Magoo in front of you driving 35 and a 55 when you're late for work and won't pull over because he's oblivious to anyone else on the road and his destination happens to be a block from where you're going. A peace that vanishes away when the bills are overdue or the furnace goes out or the car breaks down, not to mention not to mention a peace that crumbles under the more serious weight of a frightening diagnosis or some chronic illness. It's elusive. Peace is elusive for all of us. Every week, there are challenges to your peace. There is an adversary who would rob you of it in the, in the blink of an eye if he could rob you of that peace. There is something warring against that peace. The Christmas season in Advent is a wonderful time to be reminded of that true, unshakable, enduring peace. I thought about the peace once our, our, our heaven or our earthly parents <clears throat> enjoyed. Peace was once the birthright of humanity. 
Our first parents enjoyed communion with their creator and, and perfect provision. No striving after this or that, no lacking, no fear of the unknown, no sickness or disease, quite literally not even, not even death. A single prohibition by their creator and that itself to secure that peace they enjoyed. Yet the tempter came exploited the imagio Dei in them and lured the woman away by the promise of becoming like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman partook of the prohibited tree and her husband followed and plunged themselves and their offspring for thousands of generations, even until now, into sin and peace was lost. Paul summarizes the reality of men from that time until now in his Romans 3 indictment of humanity. Striking passage, but listen carefully to what he says. Destruction, speaking of all humanity universally, destruction and misery are in their past. But then this statement, and they have not known the way of peace. That's his indictment on humanity. We haven't known it. Whatever it is, is, is relatively, uh, it, it is circumstantial in so many ways, and it's relative speaking, but in our fall and in our fallenness, we have not known the way of peace. And when I say about exploiting the imagio Dei, the image of God in man, I think what they're exploiting is this command of God over creation to, to, to exercise a dominion over creation and a stewardship of creation. But in the fall, that became distorted. And apart from the peace of God, then what was called as a, an, a call to dominion becomes a call to dominate. Unless I be dominated by you, I have to fight back against you to keep from dominating me, and I have to dominate you. Mutually assured destruction, and peace is gone. Then the rest of the unfolding of human history becomes a matter of who can dominate who. And we have these little windows of relative peace, but that's because one's afraid, as we used to say as a kid, one's scared and the other one's glad of it. That's about the only peace we enjoy in this world because we are bent away from it and we have forgotten the way. We know not the way of peace. That's the indictment. Only a short time into that fallen state, the absence of peace reveals itself quite soon in the first murder. Cain slays his brother. Murder following this absence of peace. And we know the we know the course of human history from there. It's been violence against one another and oppression and all sorts of things and enslaving whole peoples and, 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 and genocides against other peoples, all in the quest to dominate so that we might force peace, force submission. We'll have peace if I can have power. And the other man says the same thing. And then millions die in their struggle to achieve it. In that same rebellion this, uh, against this peace of God, we also made ourselves enemies of God. That's striking for some people to hear that. In this rebellion, we made ourselves God's enemies. Romans 5.10, even though he's speaking here of how we were reconciled through Christ, he does say in this passage, while we were enemies we were reconciled to Christ. It's a testimony to the mercy of God and the, and the grace of God in Christ Jesus that we're saved at all. But in the process of saving it, in that moment, we were enemies of God. We would have nothing to do with the peace of God. 
We didn't know the way of peace. And as a result, we became in violation of the very moral character of God Almighty and all that we did. And in that, we became rebellious and, and enemies of God. Frightening. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James writes this of, these, of, of that lost generation. You adulteresses, do you not know? Do you not know that friendship with this world is hostility against God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. That's sobering as well. Do you want to make yourself a friend of the world? You're not going to know peace like that. Because as soon as you embrace the world and you, and, and you fulfill and gratify all your desires looking horizontally into the world, once you embrace the world and you say, the world is my friend, you're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God. Because that world that you've embraced is a world in rebellion against the, its very creator. We made ourselves in our rebellion enemies of God. Most frightening is this. Loving the world and defying God and in the absence of peace, we provoked against ourselves the wrath of God Almighty. Nothing frightens me more than reading, especially even as a Christian, of reading about the perilous place I was in apart from Christ. I was on the threshold. As Jonathan Edwards says, I was dangling over the pits of hell by, a, by something as thin as a spider web. And only a flame would have had to leaped up and licked and, and severed that thing. And I would have descended into the fullness of the wrath of God Almighty. That's how close we were. Listen to some of these verses. And this is universal. Nahum 1, chapter 1, really struck me. We, I spoke from that book recently. But in chapter 1, verse 2 through 6, listen to this description. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In the gale and the storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills come apart. Indeed, the earth is upheaved in his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. And then this verse, who can stand before his indignation? Who? Who can endure the burning of his anger. His wrath gushes forth like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. So our first parents forsook their peace and sought it somewhere else and plunged themselves and, and everyone born after them in the human flesh into this sin where there was the absence of peace. And in our absence of peace and relationship with God, we set ourselves against God as enemies. And, and in our rebellion against God, in our hostility towards Him, we invoke therefore the wrath of Almighty God. I've said before, sometimes I think we don't remember who it is that we're living out our lives in front of. It's a dangerous thing. The New Testament says to fall into the hands of an angry God. Romans chapter 1, you will know these well, verses 18 through 20. 
It says there, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's you and I, apart from Christ. Paul reminds the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 3 of that book, Among them we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by, listen to this, by nature children of wrath. We were more than just due wrath by our actions. We were acting out of our natures, and so we were by nature children of wrath. Romans 2, 5 says this, but because of your stubbornness, he's actually talking here about the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, but we didn't repent. And he says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you know what you're doing? You're storing up the wrath. You're, 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 he's in his mercy, he's holding it back and he's not pouring it on you and he's keep calling for your repentance, but you're stubborn and you stiffen your neck against that repentance. And in doing so, the wrath is building. It is, it is collecting. It is always being held behind a great dam at some moment which will crush and you will be flooded with the wrath of God. That's the imagery here. Storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In John 3, 36, John writes this, the one who believes in the Son, Jesus, quoting Jesus, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So if you're not believing in the Son, the wrath of God is abiding now upon you. And, and its fulfillment will come someday completely upon you apart from your believing in Jesus. No peace. No peace here. Only an anticipation of the wrath of God. As enemies of God, we've not known the way of peace, but rather in our rebellion, we have provoked the wrath of God and rejected at every point His mercy and brought ourselves under condemnation and judgment. Listen to what John says again in his gospel. Chapter 3, verse 17 through 20. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, speaking of Christ, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. So all of this this forfeiture of peace by our first parents, this plunging of the human race into sin whereby we knew not the way of peace, 
And in that, and in that condition, we began to sin against God and to exercise dominion and oppression. And we, and we began to become by our actions and even our nature, enemies of God, hostile towards God. And, and we provoke the wrath of God upon ourselves. And in the wrath of God, the condition that we are rendered in is under judgment and condemnation. It is not a matter of God waiting to condemn you. If you do not believe in the name of Jesus, you stand condemned now. If you walk out this morning with all of my heart without trusting Christ, you walk out of this building a condemned man or woman. There is no deviation about that. There is no softening of that in the Word of God because everything is at stake for you and for those who have trusted in Christ. This is the condition we are in. Interestingly enough, listen to this, but a return to Romans 3.17 here, the way of peace they have not known. Notice here, it is the way of peace that you don't know. I was really struck by that this week, especially when I remembered that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What we lost was the way of peace. We've not known the way of peace. How is it that peace can be found? We don't know. And so we search for some other way. We build a religion and we offer sacrifices and we do things and lift them up to God in, in the hopes that this is the way of peace, but it isn't. Our problem is we forgot the way of peace. We don't know how it's accomplished. It's amazing to me. The people of God in the Old Testament, did enjoy a kind of peace with God through covenant relationship and later through the covenant of law and conditional upon their obedience to his law. But even then, given their frequent falling away and rebellion, they themselves, though they had such great revelation, still had not known the way of peace. How do you get peace? What's the way? You may be here today and you're wondering, what is the way of peace? I'm not at peace. My whole life is in turmoil. My peace can be shaken by the slightest of inconveniences. What is the way of peace? I don't know. I come to church. I read my Bible. I do my devotions. I give in the offering plate, but I still have this fragile peace. What is the way of this peace? We could be asking the same questions. Perhaps this is what we've forgotten also. Perhaps peace has been so elusive to us because we saw it as, a, as something rather than someone, which is why I cited the, math, the, the Micah passage. Perhaps we've looked to and prayed to God that he would change our circumstances so that we might have peace, yet we've not understood that he is our peace. Of the birth of Christ then, we see God's greatest glory revealed on earth to those who understand by faith his peace. The person. Think about this. Jesus didn't come to bring peace to the world. He came to be peace to the world. You see the difference? In fact, in Matthew 10, 34 and 39, Jesus says that. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring, to, bring, to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be the members of his own household. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The one who has found his life will lose it. And the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. That's always been a mystery, uh, that verse somewhat to me, because there's so much said. After all, it says he is our peace. I mean, the, the birth announcement that we'll look at in a moment in Luke is a declaration of peace. He is that. So how could Jesus say, I didn't come to bring peace? In fact, like I said, I came to be peace. And if I have that position, guess what has to, guess what has to be set aside for that? The peace you find everywhere else. And I thought about this. The relationships he's just described, if those go south, you don't have any peace, do you? Families, fathers and, and their children, sons and daughters, mothers and daughters, or, or sons and sons. If the familiar relationships go south, you don't have any peace. So people do all sorts of things to maintain that as some sort of peace, and they're, they're resting on that. They'll, they'll do all sorts of things to not disturb the peace in the family. They can go out into a warring world, but if they've got a peaceful home life, they're, they're comfortable. The reason Jesus brings a sword is because he challenges that notion. That is a fragile peace. And if you understand why I'm here, then it's going to cause division there and the sword is going to separate you because you're going to turn to me for that peace and they're going to want you to be maintaining your accommodation to them for that peace. So there's a definite connection between what he's saying there. Notice as well that Paul actually writes in the gospel of, of the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6.15, he says, and having strapped on your feet the armor that he mentions there, the perspiration of the gospel of peace. Paul is saying, this is the gospel, that, that is the gospel. It's the gospel of peace. It's because that's what's so critical and what's so absent. Verse chapter 2 of Ephesians 14 through 17 says this, for he himself speaking of Christ, is our peace, who made both groups into one. He's speaking of Gentiles and Jews here, who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing his flesh, the hostility, which is the law, composed of commandments, expressed in ordinance, so that in himself he might make two of the two, one new person, in this way, establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross and by having put to death the hostility, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. What's he preaching? Peace. He's preaching himself. He's preaching himself. Even the mysterious Melchizedek of the Old Testament understood at least as a type of Christ and by some as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ is identified as what? King of peace. Hebrews 17, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils was first of all by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So why would this pre-incarnate, if it were, as it were, appearance of Christ, why would he be the king of peace if there was something critical about this peace that had been absent from fallen humanity and the way of which they did not know? God is revealing the way. It'll be a person, not a process. It'll be a person. Jesus is our peace. Don't you find it interesting? Look in Luke with me real quickly to chapter 2. 
In the same region, there were, verse 8, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For I bring you good tidings, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly they appeared in the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. I hear that sometimes. I remember as a kid when I would hear that said at Christmas time, I was, I was thinking they were meaning uh, this, this event is glory to God way, 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 way up there. And I've come to understand there's something more here. What's here is his highest glory. You realize the stunning weight of that? This is his highest glory for he has manifest himself in the incarnation now. God with us. Highest glory. And at the same moment, peace. That's your peace. That's, this is the peace. He is your peace which you have forfeited from the garden and which you have striven for throughout the generations and murdered one another to obtain it and have never found it. There it is before you. Highest glory to God Almighty. This is Christmas, folks. That's the, that's the blessing of Christmas. Peace. Romans 5.1 because we're thinking now about how does he accomplish this. Romans 5, 1 gives us some clues there, many by the way. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified. The baby in the manger is our peace because the manger, baby in the manger is perfect God, perfect man. And only he is worthy to endure the fullness of the wrath of God Almighty for sins and has the self-righteousness to pay the debt. You and I can't pay it. There's, no going, there's not going to be any peace for you in your death, even as an unbeliever, because you will never have paid the debt you owe to an infinitely holy God. Therefore, you will not know peace for all eternity, because there will never be a billion years from now, your dying will not have satisfied the, the, the justice of the holy one that you sinned against. But if we believe in Christ, his righteousness justifies being justified Romans 3 24 25 being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus listen to this whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood you know what propitiation means I remember reading years ago a very literal translation of that is an absorber and I'm thinking absorber of what Wrath. That's what he was absorbed. 
He has been put forward publicly as the wrath absorber for all those who have faith in him. Everything new, you and I, believer, in this room today, he went to the cross and absorbed the fullness of the wrath of God as manifest by the shedding of his blood and the laying down of his life. And through that, I have peace. And no other way in him. He is my peace. Listen to He goes on in that verse to say, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. God, he's speaking of, the Father, demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. And so the accusation was, God's not righteous. Look at all that injustice and those sins. He didn't do anything about that. And the devil, I'm sure the adversary was out there encouraging the people to do the same thing. Look at your God. He's not a just God. Look at the atrocities in the world. Look around the world today. Many are saying today there can't be a God. Look at the atrocities being committed. If there was a God such as this, this wouldn't be happening. The the accusation is unjust somehow. And God's testimony of his own righteousness is right there on the cross. You want to you see the justice of God? Look to Christ. Look to the wrath endured by Christ on behalf of those who are, who are trusting in Christ. All the wrath due those sins being absorbed by this propitiatory sacrifice in our place. You think God's light on sin? He subjected his own son to the, to the punishment for it. Doesn't sound like light on me I'd be hard-pressed to subject my child to sin, to death over your sins. But he subjected his own son to be that wrath absorber for the sins of all who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. God unjust? How do you say that? How do you say that? Colossians 1, 19 through 20 For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him, through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, heaven, having made peace, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You want to know why peace, I think, is so elusive for us? Because we haven't understood that he is our peace. We look to him and we say, he is can change the circumstances in which our peace lists. He can give me that parking space at the mall that's disturbing my peace up near the store. He can take care of this disease that's bringing my body down and give me peace. Peace is elusive to us because we're looking for some circumstance to be changed even unwittingly by a holy God and he may in fact do that but that's not to lead you to to think that your peace is subject upon the circumstances how do the martyrs go to the burning stakes in peace how how does Stephen while he's being stoned say to his killers that I see the son standing by the right hand of the father as though receiving me home how is he had perfect peace while he's being, the circumstances outwardly were anything but peaceful. How does Christ himself walk to his death in brutality upon the cross and not utter a cry or, a, or, or utter a sound of protest? What sort of, what sort of peace is carrying him through the circumstances of his life? I'll have to tell you, I'm ashamed 
at how fragile my peace is. I mean it. We woke up Thanksgiving morning and our house was 63 degrees and the thermostat was set on 68. So Thanksgiving morning, my furnace is out. And you can bet I'm not getting any serviceman out there. If he did come, it'd be 10 times the normal price. So we're going to be chilly throughout Thanksgiving. And oh, my Christmas morning Thanksgiving gratitude peace just went flitting away in a moment. I'm ashamed of that. And I think as Christians, we ought to be ashamed of things like that. Because we have an unshakable enduring eternal peace that need not wither away in the most horrible of circumstances need not and in this season of advent when we're contemplating what it means that God has come to earth remember that God has come to earth in the person of Christ as it were to be your peace not to fix stuff not to fix stuff at all, but for he himself to be your peace. That's why, that's why if you choose father and mother and children and husbands and wives and things over him, if you choose not to take up the cross that presses out of you this horizontal, earthly looking for satisfaction and peace, you can't be Christ's disciple because you've set some other peace above him as your peace. And you'll never know peace apart from finding it singularly in Christ. That's the challenge for all of us this Christmas season, right? How many of you, raise your hands if you've just been running busy already in December. Seems like we all are. Got to get here, got to get there. Got to do this, got to do that. And, and you'll be like me someday after Christmas is all over and all the gifts are torn open and all the trash is put away. And maybe even there'll be a bare Christmas tree sitting there and there'll be this little sadness that comes over you and, you, and you'll be reminded that once again, I missed that Christmas peace. And you'll have that small moment of silence and maybe you can grab just a little bit of that. And, and we're such creatures of habit because next year we'll do it all over again in the same way with the same result, right? Listen to me, this, with all my heart, we don't have to do that. We don't. We can cling to Christ. We can pursue him with all of our heart. We can set aside all these things and, and meditate upon the reality that he is in fact our peace. And, and if we see anything competing for that this Christmas season, rebuke those things. No, no, no. You are not my peace. Speak to your furnace. Speak to your broken down car. Remind it, it's not your peace. That's a Christmas exhortation. Stand with me this morning. I pray that as a Christian, you know, you know that Jesus is your peace and you've been reminded, but perhaps you're here and you spent a lifetime trying to find some peace in this world and, you, and it has been elusive and you have not found it. I just say to you this morning with all my heart, it is, he is Jesus. Trust him. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for our peace Thank you for this season of the year that we remember that there was a, a point in history in which that which was established before the foundation of the world came into being in history. And Lord, I thank you that by your grace, 
I have known Jesus as my peace. And Father, I confess along with many in this room today that we are sometimes prone to forget that. And we get caught up in life going good and in our own conveniences. And suddenly when those are torn away, Father, perhaps it's a, it's a merciful hand reminding us of where our peace truly is. Lord, in these moments of invitation, as we just listen to music, I pray that you would speak into our hearts, everyone in the room, individually, Lord, speak the truth. Bring your spirit to bear. Open our eyes and our hearts to our own futile efforts to find that which has already been provided in full in Christ. Make it so for your own namesake and for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.